Hello and welcome to the podcast of TechEU. I am your host, Andrew Degeler, and today we are going to talk about NVIDIA's plan to buy ARM, about a new European decacorn, and more. Later in the show, I will also play you an interview with Mary Williams. Uh, she is the CTO of Helix and a former CTO of Monzo and Moo. It's a great conversation, I can tell you already, so do stay tuned for that. Now, first, let me walk you through a bunch of European tech news stories of the week that I found the most important and interesting. And I have to say what a week it has been. First of all, of course, there is no way we could skip the whole NVIDIA and ARM business. The US graphics chip giant has finally announced that it intends to acquire ARM, the UK-based chip design company currently owned by SoftBank in Japan. NVIDIA wants to pay 40 billion US dollars for the privilege. So you probably know all of this, but still let me start with describing the parties in this deal and then we'll move forward to what we can actually expect from this deal in the future. First, there is ARM. The local media call it the crown jewel of the UK tech ecosystem and for a good reason. ARM does not make chips itself, but licenses the designs to some of the largest vendors in the world, including Apple, Samsung and Qualcomm. ARM designed chips are installed in the vast majority of smartphones in the world, so basically everything that runs Android and uh, uh, iOS is uh, most probably running on an ARM designed chip. Uh, they are also considered promising in the server space and in addition to that, Apple is actually planning to use ARM-based chips in the new generations of their Macs. ARM is currently owned by SoftBank, as I said, which bought it in 2016 for 32 billion US dollars, so we are looking at a 25% gain in price in four years. Next, enter NVIDIA. I called it previously a graphics chip giant, but that's not exactly correct anymore, really. It is indeed best known for the G4 series of GPUs, but it also builds chips for mobile devices, servers, supercomputers, cars, and AI applications. The company is currently worth 300 billion US dollars, and it has been rumored to develop interest in ARM for quite a while. Now, here is the rub. Uh, while SoftBank does not license chips designs from ARM, NVIDIA actually does. NVIDIA is a client of ARM and a competitor to many of its other clients. So the obvious question is, how do we even know that NVIDIA will not use its ownership of ARM to get preferential treatment? So to better explain the potential issues of this deal, I want to play you a comment for the BBC Radio 4 given by one of ARM's co-founders, Hermann Hauser. No, I think it's an absolute disaster for Cambridge, UK and Europe. Why is that? Well, there are three reasons. Uh, one is if the headquarters move to uh, the United States, as they inevitably will uh, when ARM becomes a division of NVIDIA, uh, this will lead uh, to job losses in Cambridge, Manchester, Belfast, Warwick, where ARM employs thousands of people. Secondly, NVIDIA will destroy ARM's business model, because uh, the reason why the SoftBank uh, takeover wasn't as bad as I feared, and Sonsan actually did exactly what he said he would do, is supporting uh, the company and increasing uh, the investment. Uh, this uh, and uh, retain the business model, this will clearly not be the case with NVIDIA, who will destroy the uh, business model of ARM, which is being the Switzerland of the semiconductor industry, of dealing with over 500 licensees, most of which are competitors of NVIDIA. The reason why ARM has a 95% market share of mobile phones in the world is because there's a lot of competition between these 500. If this will now be done by a single company, there's a monopolies problem 
and uh, uh, that's bad enough. The third reason, however, I think is by far the most important and most concerning. It's one of uh, economic sovereignty for the UK. Because if ARM becomes a uh, US subsidiary, a US company, it falls under the CFIUS regulations, which means that if hundreds of UK companies that incorporate ARMS in their products want to sell it and export it to anywhere in the world, including China, which is a major market, they'll, um, this decision on whether they're allowed to export it will be made in the White House and not in Downing Street. You, you, you said and I think this, this is terrible. You said it was an inevitable that jobs and, and sort of power would move to the US if NVIDIA takes over. This morning they say they're, they're committed to jobs in the UK, they're going to build a new supercomputer here, they're, they want to do more on artificial intelligence. Do you think that these commitments are really sort of not worth the paper they're written on? Absolutely. They're, they're meaningless unless they're legally enforceable. So our government always has to look at whether legally these uh, nice words that everybody always says during an m and negotiations can actually be legally enforced. But, that but, was exactly the problem we had the takeover, with the takeover of Cadbury with, by Kraft. Well, what can the government actually do, though? This is a Japanese company selling something it owns to an American company. Well, where does the UK government get involved? What could they actually do? Well, the UK government is very proud of its sovereignty. It is a sovereign government. Uh, this is a UK company. It is clearly in the national interests that it stays a UK company. So uh, the government clearly has the power to prevent that. And what uh, the government really should do is um, produce the uh, alternative, which was actually SoftBank's main route to liquidity, and take help to take the company public on the London Stock Exchange and make it a British company again. Thank you very much. Herman Hauser, co-founder of ARM. So Hauser is indeed extremely concerned about the deal. He has uh, even uh, gone uh, so far as to write an open letter to the UK's Prime Minister Boris Johnson demanding that he considers blocking the deal or at least ensures that NVIDIA agrees to three legally binding conditions. And I quote here. Number one, legally binding job guarantees for ARM employees in the UK. Number two, legally binding agreement that NVIDIA must not gain any preferential treatment over other ARM licensees. And number three, Britain must get an exemption uh, from the US OFAC regulation uh, so that UK companies are guaranteed unfettered access to our own microprocessor technology. The quote ends. You can read the full open letter on uh, the website called savearm.co.uk and if you agree with this sentiment, you can also add your signature at the very bottom of the page. The UK authorities have yet to officially react to the news, but I am sure that we can expect to hear from them real, real soon. Next up. Klarna is now a decacorn. The Swedish fintech scale-up has raised a mammoth funding round of 650 million US dollars at a valuation of 10.65 billion US dollars. Klarna says that it is now the highest valued private fintech company in Europe. The round was led by Silver Lake with participation from Singapore's Sovereign Wealth Fund GIC and funds and accounts managed by BlackRock and HMI Capital. At the same time, other new investors, namely Marian Chrysalis, TCV, North Zone and Bonnier, acquired some shares from existing shareholders.
So what is Klarna? And here I'm going to quote extensively from Seed Table, the newsletter by a friend of the Polygon, Sanchez. The quote begins, Klarna's business is straightforward. They partner with e-commerce companies to give consumers the possibility to buy products and pay later with an invoice. Put simply, you just visit a site powered by Klarna, input your email and zip code, and your purchase is on the way. You have 30 days to pay back Klarna using whatever payment method you like. It is a typical B2B2C setup. They sell to companies, but their product is used by millions of consumers every single day. The quote ends. So the appeal of Klarna for merchants is pretty obvious, right? It brings around customers that would not have made a purchase if it wasn't for Klarna's pay later system. And for that, Klarna charges the merchants between 3 and 4% in transaction fees. The company had been profitable for 14 years straight up until 2019, which is the year when it started uh, an expansion in the US. That resulted in a loss of 93 million US dollars. Klarna is yet to show meaningful results in the US, so it's probable that the current funding round will also be used at least partially to fuel its fight for the US market. Getting a strong foothold in the US is also important for Klarna for another reason. It wants to eventually float in the US. In the words of Klarna's own founder, Sebastian Semetkovsky, the quote begins, to be listed in the US, it makes sense to be an important US business. The prerequisites are coming into place, the quote ends. So, a decacorn that's just raised 650 million US dollars. Let us keep an eye on Klarna and see how things go for the company across the Atlantic. If you want to read more about its inner workings and all, I do recommend you to subscribe to the Seat Table newsletter by Gon Sanchez and look for the issue number 94. That's where he wrote about it and that's where I quoted from. Next story now, Delivery Hero, the food delivery startup headquartered in Berlin, has acquired the Latin American operations of its competitor, Glovo. Per TechCrunch report, the quote begins, the German company said today that it's paying up to 230 million euros to take over eight markets, including a 60 million euro performance-based earnout. The quote ends. The transaction covers all of the Latin American countries where Glovo operates, namely Argentina, Peru, Ecuador, Panama, Costa Rica, Honduras, Guatemala and the Dominican Republic. Earlier this year, interestingly, Glovo already pulled out of the Middle East and two markets in Latin America, Uruguay and Puerto Rico. Back then, it said that it would rather focus on markets where it could become one of the two top players, and this time the messaging is very much the same. Glovo's CEO Oscar Pierre has said that the company wants to, I quote, focus on key markets where we can build a long-term sustainable business, the quote ends. At the same time, interestingly, the CEO and co-founder of Delivery Hero, Niklas Ostberg, said that, I quote again, Latin America is a region with exceptional growth potential for online delivery, the quote ends. So I'm really wondering here, what is it that Delivery Hero knows and Glovo doesn't about how to properly operate in the region? If you have any ideas on this, if you are into this market, write me at podcast at TechU. I would love to hear your insights. Now it is time to move on with today's agenda. Let me play you an interview, as I promised, with Mary Williams, the CTO of Helix, who also used to work at Monzo, Moo, and the UK government. I will listen together with you and be back in a few minutes. Hello, hello, this is Robin Waters from Tech.eu, joined here today remotely, of course, as usual these days, by Mary Williams. Uh, she is the CTO of UK-based healthcare startup Helix. 
Mary has a long career behind her already, having worked for the likes of Procter & Gamble and Marks & Spencer before she transitioned to the wonderful world of tech startups, joining Moo and a number of other startups to help them scale, notably also the fast-growing UK challenger bank Monzo. Mary, thank you so much for joining us today. Is it safe to call you a true veteran of the UK tech scene at this point? <laughs> yeah, of course. I don't think that's ever a bad thing to be called. There you go. Well, Mary, uh, thank you so much for joining, taking the time to join us for this episode. Uh, first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, I went over your LinkedIn, but that's about it. Uh, I'm sure you can do a much better job than I can. <laughs> uh, so I'm uh, I'm South African originally. I was born there, grew up there, um, and was a hardware hacker as a, as a kid. So one of my uh, weird uh, claims to fame is I built part of South Africa's first satellite when I was a teenager. Uh, so my advice to people who have children is like, never let them do anything cool when they're young. Cause I soldered something that went into space when I was 16 and it's all been downhill since there. Like it's <laughs> pretty hard if the coolest you've ever been is when you were a gawky 16 year old. Right. And then I came over to the UK, studied uh, computer science, um, with a research specialism in, in AI at the University of Bath, including under a, some, some really, uh, great folks in the, the AI specialism there, including, uh, Dr. Joanna Bryson, who's now a leading kind of voice in AI ethics. Uh, I, was at Procter & Gamble for the first 10 years of my career in a variety of roles. It's the kind of place where you can stay a long time but do lots of different things. I then left to, uh, I in fact was leaving to go to a, a big tech job, uh, but was convinced by a chap called Tom Lusmore to come help fix the UK government. Uh, and so I joined the government digital service and did a, a you know, scaled them up. Uh, so I joined when there were about 30 people, scaled them to about 300 in the first nine months. Uh, and then since then, have, as, you, as you mentioned, done a number of roles, uh, including uh, ctofms.com, a tiny healthcare startup, a, uh, was it Moo, which is a, a wonderful uh, d uh, design and, and print company uh, for a couple of years. And then a couple of years at, at Monzo, um, the, the UK Challenger Bank, uh, through a period of really immense growth. So the engineering team was about 50 people when I when I arrived and about 250 when I left. Uh, and uh, so sort of 5x. But the company went from 300 to 1600 people and the customers went from under a million to uh, over 4 million in, the, in that time. So that was a really major scaling journey. And I'm now at, at Helix, uh, which is a AI and uh, data powered um, company looking for uh, treatments for rare diseases, uh, mostly focused on drug repurposing, so we can get treatments to, to patients faster. Great. Well, we're definitely going to talk more about Helix, uh, but uh, just to go back, uh, your time at Moo and Monzo uh, was a time of growth for both companies. I guess Moo was already a little bit older, uh, but particularly at Monzo from a very, very early uh, stage, it grew very rapidly. Um, so what are some of the learnings from, from a CTO perspective uh, that you took away from, from scaling with that company? Amusingly, many of them are a lot more about people than, than they are about technology, but I think that's often the case. I think we often uh, think all our problems are going to be technological, but but really our, our, our real challenges tend to be people-focused. Uh, so the way I tend to think about this is like things I've learned it's never too early to invest in uh, are great internal communication, being really lit, really sure that everybody understands the current priorities and the, and the focus, um, and that that excellent communication doesn't have to take anything away from autonomy of teams. It just helps people focus on the right things and know what success looks like, that it's uh, never too early to invest in having a great employer proposition, like employer brand being a great place to work for technologists in particular. Uh, hiring is one of our key challenges, I think, for all tech leaders, um, and investing in that early uh, really pays off. And then it, it's never too early to, to invest in onboarding and knowledge management because the at the time when you're 
doubling your team every quarter, um, you know, if half of your team has less than three months um, tenure, that's when it really hurts if your onboarding process isn't wonderful and your ability for people to find information isn't great. And so those are the, the three key areas I think I've learned repeatedly are worth are always worth the time and the investment. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, thanks for sharing these insights. Um, now, how, how long were you at Monzo exactly? I was in the, the formal CTO role for around 18 months. And then I was in what they were calling a CTO emeritus role for uh, so a part-time, more uh, kind of advisory role for, for a further six months. So right. a couple of years, but I, I was in a slightly odd position. I had been the, I had mentored the co-founder and CTO for two years before I ever joined. Uh, so I'd, I'd been in the uh, the Monzo orbit for, for, for about four years in total, but, but in this kind of informal mentoring way, then in a formal role and then in a, in a kind of part-time role. Got it. And if I'm not mistaken, this is also exactly the same situation with Helix uh, you've been working with before you formally joined the CTO. Yeah, I uh, I actually had breakfast with uh, with Tim, the, the CEO, and, and Kate, the, the COO, the day that their Series B uh, uh, round was announced. Um, and uh, they were trying to convince me then to, to join. I was like, I have a full-time job. But you sound amazing. It's it's very interesting, but I'm, I'm pretty uh, committed to what I'm doing right now. And then they were like, "Well, okay, if you if you can't join us, then could you come and help out? Could we could we get a day or two from you here and there to help with some of the challenges we're facing?" And did that, and then they asked me to become. When I moved into my emeritus role at Monzo, I became interim CTO, just part time, a couple of days a week, uh, and very quickly fell in love with the the mission and the team, and uh, and and was convinced to to join full time. And obviously, that coincided with some tougher times for 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 Monzo, and so I ended up. Um, volunteering to resign or first to go on furlough and then to resign to, to help with cost savings. Definitely didn't want my part-time role to mean somebody else uh, yeah. wasn't affordable uh, for a full-time job. But that didn't sit right with me. Yeah. Tougher times, not just for Monster, but for a lot of companies, uh, also because of yeah. COVID, of course. Um, was that also part of uh, the decision process? Yeah, I th I, I, I've always been... Um, fascinated by by healthcare i i mean i grew up in south africa where if you're a smart kid you don't get asked what you want to be when you grow up you get asked which you want to be when you grow up because the assumption is you're either going to be a lawyer or a doctor and so i, de I defied a lot of uh, expectations by going off and studying computer science instead uh, but i've always been quite interested in in medtech and i actually have a rare disease myself so i've got ehlers danlos syndrome all my uh, collagen's malformed all my joints dislocate so I, so i deal with that and and with a lot of the uh, the things that come with having a very uh, like a relatively rare disease that you know there's not a huge amount of research not necessarily that many treatment options uh, and so the the mission was really interesting but absolutely the fact that helix were actively working on on covid from uh, the moment that it looked so serious in in the far east so not not even before it uh, started to impact uh, to europe was absolutely part of the part of the decision to to join uh, full time Great. Well, you said you fell in love with the, the mission and the vision for comp for people who don't know the company. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about Helix and then, and its mission? So traditional drug discovery is uh, a very expensive and, and very long process. It you know, costs billions, takes uh, over a decade quite often. Uh, and the, 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 the vision and the mission for Helix is... Uh, uh, um, uh, we believe that every every rare disease uh, patient deserves a treatment, and we accept the sort of economic realities of you can't spend billions on uh, something that uh, only 
X thousand people in the world or even a million people in the world uh, suffer from because the the price you'd have to charge them is unachievable. Uh, and so rather than, um, so, so our focus is essentially to try to get more treatments for more rare diseases to impact more rare disease patients by uh, using AI to do drug repurposing in a much, much smarter way. Um, and so we've got some uh, amazing, amazing tech, but also a number of amazing scientists who uh, work together. To, so we still have a human in the loop interpreting uh, the predictions and, and validating them through experimentation and, and lab work and so on. Uh, but we're trying to show that we can find treatments by combining drugs that already exist and therefore have been through safety testing and, and all this. So the first, you know, three, four, five years of the drug development process can be condensed quite significantly. And so if you can get meaningful treatments to for a number of these rare diseases without needing to invent completely new drugs, it's a it's a really, really powerful proposition. Yeah. This this has the potential to sound like a really stupid question, but um, of all the diseases that are considered rare, are they actually specified somewhere? Is there like a list of it, or uh, is it relatively? It's, it's not a stupid question at all. It's a very pertinent question. Uh, so there's a there are there are a number of different lists. I don't think there's any global agreement about where the threshold is, and there's obviously always these discussions about whether something's uh, super rare or whether it's just underdiagnosed. Uh, and actually, the, the rare disease I have is. In the time that I, since I was diagnosed with it, it's gone from being estimated to be one in fifty thousand people to one in ten thousand people, and that's because they've, you know, come to realise that possibly it was being uh, misdiagnosed or underdiagnosed uh, or or just misunderstood by by a lot of doctors. It's a weird one. It's something that mostly most of your hospital visits or whatever are because you've got you know a dislocated shoulder or a dislocated rib or something but the department that knows enough to diagnose you is rheumatology and not a lot of young people end up in rheumatology it's kind of where you end up sent when you've got arthritis when you're when you're older and so it's 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 difficult uh, but there is a there are some definitions so there, there's a number of countries the US the UK included that have uh, what's called orphan uh, disease or often drug uh, designation. So there's a set of diseases that are considered to be rare enough that it's unlikely to be, uh, or th where they want to incentivize companies to do more work to find treatments. And so uh, in the US, there's a list of 7,000 rare diseases, uh, affects about 35 million people um, that are you know officially described as rare. Uh, but yes, there isn't necessarily international consensus on what percentage of the population or what proportion or you know what absolute number of people means that it's rare uh, but you get everything from 12 people in the world have ever been diagnosed with it to one in five thousand, one in ten thousand uh, kind of levels uh, so thanks for sharing some insights on that um, and in, in when you look at the, the company itself you've mentioned that they've raised series b funding already uh, but what would you say the stage of the company is in right now like how close are they to achieving at least the first step of its uh, vision very close. So, so we're we're aiming to uh, have treatments for for a hundred rare diseases heading towards the clinic by twenty twenty five, and we're uh, at the stage of designing our first um, clinical trial, uh, phase one clinical trial, right now. So there's seventeen uh, diseases that we've already done uh, detailed work on, uh, and yeah, that the, we're approaching the the first clinical stage with uh, with one of those uh, at the moment, and have a number of diseases at uh, preclinical, uh, which is kind of uh, testing in the lab, testing uh, in in cells and in animals, which is obviously a legal requirement when you're doing medicine for humans. You can't jump straight to to human testing. You have to you have to do safety testing and so on. I know it's a very um, it, it's something that 
you know people have very strong feelings about but i think for for medicine it's it's a it's an absolute requirement that you need to to do some form of animal testing before you can progress to human testing I would say fortunately so, but of course there's always people who think differently about it. Um, now, uh, in terms of the AI technology that you're developing, how much of it relies on already existing te- technology and how much of it is really proprietary pioneering uh, stuff that you're building? I think I think in all areas of technology, you're missing a trick if you're not standing on the shoulders of giants. So I think we're we're trying to do that mix of keeping up with everything that's changing, what's becoming commoditized, you know, increasing amounts of uh, certainly machine learning uh, algorithms and similar are available, um, you know, whether it's through Google Cloud Compute or, uh, or, or AWS or, or other vendors. But the real magic comes where you can take the deep domain expertise, this understanding of the, the biology and the science and the pharmacology and so on, and, and bring that to bear with the, the techno- technological understanding. So I'd say a lot of it's very unique in bringing those two disciplines together. And actually, I think generally in, in science, many of the most interesting breakthroughs come in the, the overlaps between disciplines rather than just in, in, a, in a pure single, single discipline. So, so I'd say we're trying to take advantage of every advance that happens externally, but absolutely the way we're applying it and the uh, specifics of what we're building are, are quite unique. Great. And what would you say your biggest challenge is, whether it's technical or, or, or scaling through people? What's the biggest challenge you're facing right now? I think like many uh, like, like many startups, the, the biggest uh, challenge we're facing right now is you know, suddenly having more money uh, and needing to still be quite focused. I think there's an there's a underestimated advantage that... that uh, having to be lean because you're um you know you're trying to make your runway last and 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 so on can can have and so quite often after a major funding round uh companies can uh, scale a little too fast or try to expand the number of things being done in parallel a bit a bit too quickly so i think we've got a very in some ways quite pedestrian challenge of needing to maintain focus and and not do too many things all at once from a technical point of view getting the right data validating the quality of it and then keeping it up to date and constantly learning um, is is the uh, just the general fundamental challenge in in AI in particular like your machine learning can only, is only as good as the data sets that you train it on your you know your deep learning can be fantastic but if you have uh, any kind of you know not 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 as high quality information in there without without the that being possible to discern uh, then you, you can run into trouble so I mean, and there's obviously some very famous examples of that, uh, particularly in machine learning um, that have happened in the US. Um, for instance, when they started to do automated decision making on on mortgages, it was like uh, it's like money laundering for bias is the the phrase I've heard, right? So if you train a algorithm on the decisions that have been made by humans who have their prejudices, and uh, certainly in the states were not lending, not approving mortgages for many people of color, for instance, then yeah. unsurprisingly, the algorithm's racist too. <laughs> and so we don't, we don't have quite those, uh, those problems, but, but making sure that we have the context of the, of the, inform- of the data um, as well is, is very important. Um, so that, so that we're, we're, um, I suppose, helping the, the algorithms to judge that quality and that uh, context accordingly when, when using, uh, using it for predictions. Got it. Yeah, I also remember a certain incident with student grades over in the UK. So it's not just in the US. It's a bit I mean, I uh, I genuinely don't think. I think somebody uh, like did it in an Excel spreadsheet and told somebody that it was AI. Right? Like, if if somebody had actually used AI for the student grades, it couldn't 
possibly have delivered the result that was so problematic because uh, a computer would have seen that even in the you know the most disadvantaged you know her lowest performing school in the country there's still a range of of performance and you know it's not I'm a working class kid my granddad was a coal miner he went down the mine at 13 because his his dad died and he had 10 siblings and you know I'm not on paper I'm not someone who would have gotten I've got the equivalent of 10 A levels which is a little bit ridiculous and partly about uh, South Africa and doing A levels in addition and in mm. my spare time, but like you know, there there are outliers in in every in every class, and I think anything that just unilaterally uh, downgraded grades is isn't can't possibly be a decent AI approach. Is what I'm I suppose what I'm getting at. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's um, a different discussion. Uh, but you you very uh, correctly pointed out that you depend very heavily on, on data and the data sources that you have. Uh, but it sounds to me like you need a lot of collaborations for that with either universities or research center or really big pharma companies who have, um, you know, that sort of data already already around. Um, is that a big part of what Helix is doing as well? Yeah, so so we, we both, uh, we you know, we buy commercial data sets. There are increasingly... Um, there's been a lot of great work done around uh, open data, um, you know, the, the Open Data Institute in the UK that uh, Tim Berners-Lee, the um, you know, inventor of the, the World Wide Web, uh, he's one of the, the founding, uh, I can't remember, he's a founding member or a founder of the organization. I, I, I will get in trouble for forgetting that because I, I have worked with him before. Um, <laughs> but uh, that, so that the Open Data Institute in the UK in particular, if I re- rephrase that, the Open Data Institute in the UK that uh, Tim Berners-Lee was a, a part of starting, um, have done some really great work on making the point that a lot of particularly healthcare data can and should be more publicly available because the you know the greater good is to to be able to to learn from it and that's actually one really positive uh, side effect or silver lining that we've seen from from COVID was you know uh, embracing that it it was far more important for more data to be available and it to be more available to more people to have more eyes on the problem. Uh, and so we've seen an explosion in in public that you know in open data sets being being shared. And so we we consume some of that. We we buy data. One thing that's interesting with our focus on rare diseases, it, it's a uh, it's not necessarily a profitable focus for uh, traditional pharma because um, it it just isn't a big enough market. And and so uh, in in some cases they are quite willing to share because there's it's not um, a disadvantage to them. Uh, to, to do so, it, they're not the kind of diseases that they would be able to to capitalize on with the traditional methods of drug discovery, uh, and so we we do get some very positive um, partnerships with uh, with companies. But we also one of the ways Helix is different. We we partner a lot with patient groups and with these rare diseases. Quite often, patients end up needing to become experts, whether it's for themselves or uh, you know parents, carers, etc. For um, for younger patients or uh, particularly severely affected uh, patients. And so there's a wealth of information that may not be quite as uh, academic or, uh, or or similar, but you, you can learn a lot by really listening to the, the lived experiences of those of those patients as well. Uh, and again, we so we have a rare treatment accelerator program where those patient groups can can apply for us to to focus on on their diseases um, and they help uh, share you know what research they've been able to do so far. There's lots of charities that uh, get involved in um, trying to find treatments for uh, some of these rare diseases, and so um, it, it's actually a, quite a nice collaborative atmosphere in in that kind of world. Because yeah, it's not fighting over a, a huge opportunity or sprinting to the to the finish line. It, it, it's just 
not necessarily always possible to, to do the investment. And universities as well, we, we find a number of them have got, uh, whether it's uh, NCEs, which is a new chemical entity, like a new molecule or new drug that exists that could be repurposed. Quite often, there are loads of these projects kicking around that have been worked on to a certain extent. But then if you know, the things that tend to get picked up and continued with are the ones where there's a, you know, billion dollar opportunity. But but if it's anything smaller than that, quite often the, the people who've worked on it and the, the researchers in the universities are very open to collaboration, which we've we found to be very positive. I can imagine. And it's great to hear. Um, well, thank you so much for sharing more about Helix. Um, just a final question to conclude the conversation. Uh, from your perspective as a CTO in a number of companies, how do you rate the technology industry in the UK now? you know, vis-a-vis -vis the rest of Europe or, or even even beyond that? Yeah, I get frustrated by this narrative that if you're not in Silicon Valley, then uh, uh, you're missing out. I, I think there's immense strength in the, the European ecosystem in particular. I, I'm obviously very sad about the Brexit vote and uh, the UK pulling away from, from the rest of Europe. I think that's going to hurt the technology industry in a really significant way. Uh, I think Quite often to Berlin's benefit, a lot of my uh, past colleagues have moved to, to Berlin or to Barcelona or to Lisbon, and uh, I think we'll see that continue to happen. But the, the talent level that we have in, in Europe is absolutely uh, on par with, with what you can find elsewhere in the world. We don't have quite as many people who've become a millionaire already by being at an early stage startup, but I think that's uh, more about the distribution of uh, VC money and, uh, and the, the kind of yeah, the, the relative, the number of different uh, startups and, and, and similar. So I'm very bullish and, and very positive about the, the talent that we have in, in Europe. I think, as I said, the UK is going to suffer from Brexit. Uh, tech industry is not going to benefit at all. And, and even some of the, the way the UK's um, inclusion uh, is suffering, you know, being anti-trans in some ways, I think is not, not helping either. But uh, but yeah, I'm, I continue to be pretty positive about about the the UK tech landscape and very positive about the European tech tech landscape. I think building products when you have loads of different uh, types of users, different languages, different needs is uh, it's it makes it more complex, but it also means that the end product is very 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 robust and very good. Great. And as you were talking, I came up with a final, final question. Have you never had uh, felt the desire to start your own company rather than join a company that was already scaling? I think I'm one of these people where I'm I'm super pragmatic. I'm the like get shit done person. And so I possibly one day I will I will have something where I'm just like, yes, this is the thing I would you know, I would I would pour my entire self into, uh, but I'm actually I, I like having lots of things that I do. So I've got you know full time CTO job at the moment. Actually, I, I'm still uh, interim CTO for a, for another uh, health tech company called uh, Lab Genius, who are really interesting. I'm an advisor for a VC uh, called Kindred, and I chair a. a a technical conference um, called the Lead Developer, which runs well when when we're not mid-pandemic, runs in uh, London, New York, Berlin, uh, San Francisco. We're now running on online uh, and so on. So I'm kind of happiest when I'm busy, and uh, and so I'm I probably don't have the focus to do just one thing or to drop all of those other things to to just focus on one thing. And I've you know I've seen a lot of founders. I think I think that. Uh, willingness to to just completely focus on the the thing that you're trying to build is uh certainly in the the sort of the mythology of how of how you have to do startups i think equally i've i've read that maybe uh 
founders with a bit more experience tend to be more successful. So maybe one day I'll wake up and be like, yeah, I have the idea that I would I would willingly pour myself into. But yeah, till now I've I've mostly been happy joining and and helping to accelerate or to scale uh, other people's things. I um I think I'm immensely pragmatic and good at the the getting it done and don't have to. I'm not precious about whether it's uh, my vision uh, or my idea. I, I I like the practical element of uh, of making it happen uh, as right. much as anything else. Well, that's a very good and a very very uh, loud and clear. Uh, answer right there um can't thank you enough for your time we're looking forward to whatever you do next whether it's your own company or just staying with helix or other companies to scale them uh, mary williams thank you so much for your time and best of luck with everything thanks very much for having me and this is it for our today's episode thank you so much for listening i do hope that you enjoyed it please help us spread the word about the show tell a friend or colleague about us and follow our updates on twitter at tech underscore eu audio engineering for this podcast is done by soundpulse that is sound-pulse.com please feel free to email us with any questions suggestions and opinions at podcast at tech eu i am going to talk to you next monday in the meantime enjoy your week and take care bye bye